Hey everyone, welcome to the 2017 Sports Rehab and Sports Performance Teleseminar. This is year number nine that we've been putting the Teleseminar series together and really looking forward to sharing this great lineup of guests that we have for you this year over the upcoming weeks. This year's Teleseminar is going to be brought to you and sponsored by Be Strong Occlusion Training and Blood Flow Restriction Training Devices. They've been gracious enough to offer a 15% discount for anybody who heads on over to their website and uses the discount code SRE. So if you head on over to the website, go B, the letter B, strong.com and use the discount code SRE, you'll get 15% off of their devices, which comes to be about a $60 discount on their elastic BFR training devices. So, without further ado, we're going to get this teleseminar underway. Today, we're going to be kicking off the teleseminar with the guys over at uh, Resilient PT and Performance in New York City. Uh, we had Doug Kachijan on the line uh, on Sports Rehab Expert not too long ago and it was a hit on the site. So, wanted to get all three of the guys together. So, today we got Doug Kachijan. Trevor Rappa and Greg Spatz on the line, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of a roundtable. So, how's everybody doing today? Well, well thank you. Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and uh, we were talking this a little bit before we got on the line, but I, I think some other people would just be a little bit interested too if you just give a general background of how uh, Resilient started. So, the three of us all met in PT school. Uh, through like the Facebook group when you know nobody knows each other and we're trying to get to know each other's names and all that good stuff. Me and Greg kind of met on there and then happened to end up being roommates our first year. And then about halfway through our first semester, we kind of ran into Doug in the library. Yeah, so um, I was in the library just kind of standing around, probably looking at something I wasn't supposed to be looking at. <laughs> you know, not not testable material, but maybe listening to one of your your guys' podcasts or something I was more interested in. And I saw somebody with a Mike Boyle strength and conditioning t-shirt turned out to be Trevor. And I went up to him and I was kind of like, why are you in the library wearing a Mike Boyle strength and conditioning t-shirt? And he's like, oh, I, I interned there. And I had an intern at, at Cressy Sports Performance uh, a few years prior. And so obviously we had a shared interest there in strength and conditioning, which even in our physical therapy program was a little bit of a rarity. So talked shop a little bit, realized that we had some common interests and then uh, Trevor told me about Greg and how prior to PT school, Greg was a strength coach for the Diamondbacks. Some of the three of us, you know, we go to lunch together. We just talk about all the things that we um, want, wanted to learn outside of school. And, you know, it just kind of naturally evolved into us working together. It just kind of made sense. And we just, we just, you know, once we, uh, I graduated a year before them, I was able to get the practice started a little bit. And then once they graduated, they were able to step in and help out and you know since then we've been working together so the last uh two or so years no it's real cool to hear and uh, resilient uh seems you guys seem to be making a good presence online and uh, i think just more people kind of interested to hear how that story started so it's kind of funny how all things work out together and and end up the way they do for sure all right, so the, the first topic that I wanted to cover, and it was uh, something that you guys had posted on your blog, um, and it was about professional communication. Uh, and this is something that with social media is just, sometimes it can get, uh, the waters can get muddy anyways. So um, what I was 
interested to hear what your guys' thoughts are, both um, between clinicians, um, whether they're PTs or people of different professions, just how communication um, between the same profession but also similar professions can ultimately start um, working together um, in, you know, combining other people's strengths and uh, start moving, moving the industry as a whole together. Yeah, so I think uh, the impetus for the blog post that you're referencing was just going on some of these different social media forums and seeing how people interact with one another, especially within the physical therapy community. So one thing that I, I think is, is a positive within the field is that physical therapists are starting to emphasize you know, the language that you use with patients and how certain things can be misconstrued and even uh, perceived as threatening by a patient. And a lot of times the same people who preach communication and careful language with patients uh, don't heed that same advice when they interact with other professionals. So a lot of times in these social media forums, top, different topics become very dichotomous when they don't need to be. So you go on some of these forums and it's very predictable. Somebody will ask a question um, with very good intentions. They just want to better themselves. And it ends up deteriorating into a conversation uh, or not even a conversation, really just kind of a shouting match about whether it's pain science versus biomechanics or clinical experience versus randomized controlled trials or um, manual therapy versus exercise. Again, as if these things are adversarial when they're really complementary. So people, I think a lot of times on social media take very extreme positions because on social media, if you're trying to gain followers, it helps to be very sort of certain about yourself and to create this uh, aura of expertise. And obviously there's a lot of stuff in the field that we don't know and probably most of the answers lie more in the middle of these extremes than you know at the far ends. And so, again, I think that a lot of times from a communication standpoint, when someone asks a question on one of these forums and says, you know, I'm interested in taking this Con Ed course, um, I think anyone who's willing to take a Con Ed course and give up a weekend to learn something, presumably to get better, should be credited, even if, you know, even if somebody said, I want to take a Con Ed course to learn how to bloodlet for the weekend. Now, we don't, we don't advocate bloodletting, but at the same time, there's a way, there's a way to say that probably the best use of your time is not to spend 16 hours on the weekends learning to bloodlet. And yet as soon as people bring up certain things that are, you know, for whatever reason controversial, whether it's like a manual therapy course or even a, a commercial exercise model course or assessment course, it's not immediately it becomes, well, here's an RCT that says that whatever you want to learn is, is, is worthless. And, you know, again, I mean, that can be threatening to somebody who's just trying to get better. So certainly there, there's probably, you know, what we do should be scrutinized and it should be discussed and we should make sure that what we're doing is evidence-based and theoretically plausible. But there's a way to do that. And when people are genuinely interested in learning and bettering themselves and they're immediately kind of shunned or, or mocked for what they're trying to learn, I don't think that's the best way to advance the profession. And I think that it's something that a lot of people within physical therapy don't talk about. But it's very, very disruptive, and I think it, it, the field, you know, the growth of the field is at stake. And if we can't communicate well with one another, then how are we going to have a unified message when it comes to marketing ourselves to the public or interacting with patients? So I think the idea is, you know, whatever, whatever emphasis that we have on language and communication, um, however we interact with our patients, we should hold ourselves to the same standard when we interact with one another and recognize that even other professionals you know, can also react emotionally to things and take things out of context. So 
we need to be very careful about how we deliver that message. Um, not to say that you know we should not be critical of one another, but again, there's a way to do that, and there's a way to be respectful and civil. And I think in social media, a lot of times people cross that line. And I think just to boil it all down, like we're all, we're all here to get better, we're all here to help people in, in some way or another, and and we're all open to criticism. Like we always want to be very transparent when we put things out on the internet or if we're, you know, even just having a conversation with someone, it's like this is actually what we do. This is how we actually implement a certain theory or, or a sort of way of thinking. And we're totally open to saying like, well, that's how I do it. Like, what do you think? And what, like, how can I get better? Or what is a different lens I can look through that will uh, maybe help my patient or my, my client just have a better life in whatever way they need. Yeah, I mean, People post things on the internet and they just, like you know, Greg said, we're all trying to get better as professionals to help our clients and help improve people's lives. And people post with, you know, great intentions, but they just get criticized. There's no, there's often not something productive as something that you could do better or have changed. It's just why what you did was wrong. And I think if we look to just help each other as professionals, it can really, you know, change the profession and we can have a lot more productive conversations online because it is a great platform to be able to help each other and, and grow as a profession, but it, it becomes, you know, people become fearful to put anything online because they're just going to get ridiculed. And, like, I understand that's it's not fun to be criticized with, you know, nothing that you could do better. It's just that what you did was bad. Yeah, just one, one more, you know, point on the context. A lot of times, even the in these social media debates, when somebody, you know, wants to make a point, they'll just, like, leave uh, a link to a PubMed abstract, press enter, and then provide no context at all, as if, you know, it's like if you, if you put a PubMed citation that's just drop the mic, that means you're right. And it's almost like these, these studies should be a way to engage people in dialogue. They should be conversation starters, not conversation enders. And a lot of times people, you know, provide these, they drop these PubMed abstracts um, without any kind of context. So what population was studied? Um, when you really get into the nitty-gritty of a lot of these, these studies, you realize that they may not be generalizable to the conversation that's being had at that moment online. And so I think people need to be a little bit more intellectually honest about what, you know, what these studies actually say and how transferable they are to certain discussions. And there's, there's no one study that's going to, dis, to refute an argument or support an argument. Obviously, we need to you know, rely on clinical experience, the randomized controlled trials, but the idea that you can just you know, post, post an article, a, a link to an abstract, and that means that you're right, I don't think is the right way to go about this debate. If you're going to do that, I think you should qualify the paper and say how it actually pertains to the discussion at hand. But I think a lot of times people, you know, they're not they're not okay being uncertain. They have to be right. And I think the way to, the way to make these dialogues more productive is to be less concerned about being right and more concerned about just seeking seeking the truth. And a lot of times to have a conversation about the truth involves you sort of admitting your own vulnerability and uncertainty and being okay with that. What What do you guys think uh, is the best way? So, say someone's having some, some struggles, whether they're you know a, a PT who's working it with uh, or working with an athlete or just an individual, and then they have a strength coach. Um, what's some ways people should be approaching a conversation if there is some pushback against uh, uh, against the two different fields? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the first thing is you have to have kind of a, a common language. So if you're, if you're a PT, what, what, what words or what language is going to resonate with that strength coach? Um, and I think a lot of it is, is just being honest, right? So if, you, if you're a PT and you don't have, you're not comfortable training people at the far end of the performance spectrum and you're more comfortable, let's say, doing, you know, acute rehab, 
you should be able to say, okay, like to the strength coach, this is where, this is the point that I've gotten this athlete to. I'm not comfortable taking them any further, but you know, this athlete has full range of motion, passively and actively, but I haven't been able to progress them to, you know, um, like sprinting progressions or jumping progressions, that kind of thing. And I think the same thing works in reverse. The strength coach should be able to say, look, I don't really understand how to get somebody from, you know, uh, one day post-op to the point that they're able to train without pain. So I think it just it just comes down to honesty and transparency and, again, being being okay and pointing out what your limitations are and just have, having an honest conversation because if you can't do that and your expectations aren't very clear, then there's, there's ambiguity, and when there's ambiguity, that's when that can breed some of the mistrust when different professionals um, interact in that kind of an integrated setting. And I would say definitely not being uh, like a professional of one certain camp would be helpful just to be very open-minded and not say, listen, this is exactly what I do and that's all I do. It's more so just having an open door and, and talking all different languages, talking physiology and bringing it all back to what is actually happening in the body and with, with the nervous system. Like what are we actually going for? What's the goal? And it's like, okay, in my scope of practice, with my experience, I know how to do this to the physiology. What can you do beyond that? And having the back and forth, I think, would be, I think that kind of just piggybacks on what Doug just said. Yeah, I mean, knowing your own limitations within your own profession is huge. Like, you know, for us, we, we definitely try to go into some of the, you know, higher level training things, but there's absolutely people that know more about certain training things that we do. Like, if we work with a high level sprinter, you know, we can get him to a certain degree, but to get him to that, you know, the highest level of his performance, there's definitely a sprint coach that knows way more than we can and can help us, or sorry, can help the client way more than we can. So I think being honest with your own limitations and having an open dialogue, again, what's the goal? The goal is to help the client first and foremost, and working together is the best way to do that. Which, again, speaking a common language is huge. All right. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. I appreciate you guys talking about that. I thought it was an important topic to bring up just because I saw it on your blog post, but I thought it was an important topic to bring up for the the growth of professions, you know, not just for PT, but for other professions as well, too. So just wanted to touch on that. We're going to shift a little bit more into uh, more clinician-based uh, questions here. Um, two systems that seem to be getting a lot of uh, publicity lately have been the PRI and the FRC system. Um, I know... Uh, you guys have had quite a bit of experience with, with both of them. Um, so uh, just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the PRI and the FRC systems and how those two may be able to mesh together or if they even can. Yeah, I think they definitely do mesh. Um, a lot of times people develop emotional attachments to these different commercial models, but you know whether it's FRC or PRI, having taken both of those courses, what I what I left with was, I'm like, wow, this is just really good biomechanical theory. It's really good histological theory. It's really good neurophysiological theory, really good respiratory mechanics theory. And so if you take those things, I mean, that's really the universal language of medicine. It's just the, the science and the, the physiology. And I think that from that standpoint, both systems are, are very compatible and not dichotomous where I think, you know, we, we, we see value in both. I would say specifically, um, we, we like the PRI concept of, you know, getting that sort of proximal neutrality and orientation. And then once, once we establish that through some of the basic motor control exercises or respiratory activities, that's where we probably use something like in, like FRC, which is a little bit more uh, software-centric, if you will. They're going after more of the histology and the long-term connected tissue adaptations. 
but we want to we want to establish that proximal neutrality first before we start going after the tissue adaptations peripherally. Um, but again, they, they are very complementary, and I think that even even in FRC, they talk a little bit about proximal orientation and differentiating between different joint end fields. So even in the FRC, they would say, you know, if you have closing angle pain um, when you get into a particular joint position, they would not advocate doing any of their techniques, whether it's pails and rails or cars. So again, what, what they're effectively saying is they, they respect that, that proximal uh, orientation type of thinking, even though even if they don't use those exact words. But I think with a lot of these courses, you realize they're really a lot of times saying the same thing. And that's what's cool is because nothing is really that unique. People are just kind of taking the science, good science, and applying it in different ways, which is why we see both those systems as very complementary. And I think there would be times, too, when maybe it's tough to get somebody to be more neutral proximally, like Doug was talking about. And maybe there is a time when an FRC technique um, that's more like tissue-centric might be something that can get them to that uh, more neutral position. So it's it's all the same when you really boil it down. It's all good biomechanics, and it's what is actually needed by the person. Um, you know, is it the, the respiratory mechanics, the respiratory uh, changes for mobility, or is it more so just the, the tissue work that they need? And I haven't taken the FRC courses. I just learned from what Doug and Trevor have helped me with and from reading other things, so I can't really speak too much to it, but just seen some good application from uh, from the FRC system helping my PRI lens, so to speak. Yeah, I think all the commercial models really have a lot of similarities between them, and FRC and PRI definitely have a lot of similarities between them because, you know, everything is based off of physiology, and the more you learn that, the, the more, you know, how complementary all the systems really become, and you can see how they all blend together to some degree. Uh, they're just go off what they said. Joint position is definitely huge for us. And then as we establish that, you go into more control whether those are PRI or FRC exercises. It almost doesn't even matter because they're relative, They're doing the exact same thing. They both you know, are based off of PNF concepts and uh, are going after function to the same degree. Right. So something that uh, often gets brought up, too, is the, the PRI and the, the emphasis on asymmetries. And I think, I think sometimes it... While it's important to understand that, I think some people may get caught up in that fact too, to where maybe you do have another system such as, you know, FRC, SFMA, different things like that, where you may be performing uh, a certain exercise that doesn't necessarily feed into the the asymmetry, um, and you could be performing it bilaterally. I think some people get afraid of if they are, you know, if they're trying to champion the PRI model, try, being afraid of doing something on either side. Um, could you maybe speak to that a little bit? Do you, do you guys feel that way at all, or um, what's your yeah, thoughts there? I, I understand what you're saying. I don't. My interpretation of PRI, I don't think that PRI would ever espouse only doing things on one side. I think they would say the goal is ultimately to get people to do things on both sides uh, equally well and to have you know good motor control regardless of what side that you're going to. I think that what differentiates the PRI approach is they recognize some of these inherent anatomical and neurological asymmetries we, we have and how that can drive motor behavior. But that's why if you have a good assessment system, at least initially you can figure out if someone does test asymmetrically and you're trying to achieve certain, uh, certain joint motions, at that point you might only do an intervention or an exercise on one side but the goal, I think, long-term, even in PRI, I'm very clear about this, is that you don't want to continue to do things on one side. If you're someone who's, let's say, like 
very right lateralized is what you know what they would typically say. The goal is to be able to have somebody do something where they put themselves in, in right stance or a right lateralized activity and be able to get out of that position and access the left side equally well. So it's not it's not to, to fear one side or to to fear any of these asymmetries. It's just to recognize that we, we start out as sort of inherently asymmetric, that asymmetry is a part of movement and it's a part of physical medicine, but how can you know how can we um, get past that and then access things equally well on both sides? I don't think that um, using bilateral activity is necessarily a bad thing, even if you're looking through a PRI lens. I think if you were to look at some of like how we would actually train someone too, it would answer that question really well. Is the all these different tests and asymmetries and everything? It's it's a great snapshot. We know what the person at the joint is able to do, but it doesn't entirely change how we are training somebody because we need to get them to be able to do certain high-level activities to be good at sport or whatever activities they want to um, partake in. So our training sessions don't. We're not only doing you know like pressing on one side or doing only single leg, you know, left hamstring work and doing an RDL. Like we're, we're doing bilateral lifts. We're doing things in both directions, but with respect to what the joint is able to do, right versus left, we, and based on the different uh, like kind of corrective type stuff we would do in the beginning of a session typically, then can we achieve these ranges of motion that we need? If we can, then there's no reason why we shouldn't be training it at a higher level. I don't know. They answered the question, I think, really well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think they did a great job on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I would add, I think, is that you know this idea that like the the body isn't that fragile that if you do a bilateral activity or you know if you're test right lateralized and you do a, a right lateralized activity that like all of a sudden you're gonna fall apart. The idea, I think, with any with a good training or rehab program is to put people kind of in in any, any position, obviously, within certain safety constraints, and they should be able to get out of those positions and not be stuck in them and have variability in their movement. So I think with any, any, any of these commercial movement systems, the goal is ultimately movement variability. And again, I, the, the body is not so fragile that, you know, if you, if you do like a, a barbell squat, whether it's a front squat or a back squat, that you're going to lose all the motion you gained by doing a quote-unquote corrective exercise all these things are complementary, and if you're if you're training responsibly under load, um, like if you're doing a pull up or even a lat dominant activity, you shouldn't lose all of your shoulder range of motion after you do a set of pull ups. And if you and if you do do that, it's it's either it's a problem, you know, from the the therapy standpoint, or it's a problem with the patient. But like the, the, the nervous system isn't that malleable that like doing one set of an activity, whether it's bilateral or unilateral, should dramatically change how they would test on the table. If that makes sense. No, it does, and it's it's nice to hear your guys' input on it too, because it's a question we get on the site quite often. Um, and you know, my response usually is, you know, just like you said, that the goal is to get someone reciprocal. And then if you're, I mean, if you're going to train, you're going to not just going to perform lunges on one side; you're going to perform lunges on both sides. So um, it's it's just nice to hear a different point of view and uh, someone else explain it a little bit differently. Um, one of the, the next questions uh, I got for you is uh, about the 90-90 hip lift um, with PRI um, and just getting the patients to feel the hamstrings, um, inhibit the back, and, and feel the things that they need to feel because the, the sensation of this, having the correct sensations in the correct areas uh, is very important to the PRI exercise, um, but it, it's hard to get a patient who 
maybe is not the most motor inclined um, to feel these areas. So just wondered if you guys had any tricks for uh, just kind of the basic repositioning exercises. Yes, so from the beginning with like a 90-90, one of the things that we do is we usually don't have somebody with their feet just in the wall. We try to give them some sort of ledge or a chair or something they can kind of dig their heels down into. Um, I think the cue of emphasizing that, that heel point of contact, and I, one of the cues I use is like pretending you step in dog poop and you're trying to scrape your foot down. I think that's a good cue that kind of gives them a visual because a lot of people have done that before, so they have some sort of recollection of what they've done. Um, that really helps them just you know, pull the heel down and reach the knee towards the ceiling a little bit to really engage the hamstring. And I give them, I emphasize, you know, I say from the belt up, I want to go flat into the floor. And people may take them a few reps of trying that before they get it. But uh, just going super slow through this exercise and taking the time and emphasizing, you know, one thing at a time. And for me, it's always the heels first. Um, it, do you guys notice uh, co-contraction at the quad a lot or someone who may be having some difficulty with, well, I, in my experience, using giving someone something to dig their heel down to, it takes that way away a lot. But uh, if someone's getting a lot of co-contraction or feeling their their quads too much with the exercise, um, you feel it, is it just they're pushing into the wall too much? Do you think and not digging down? This is probably not. I mean, this is how we do it. I don't even know if this is how the institute would would advocate that we do it. But typically, if we're going after hamstring activation, we wouldn't have them put their feet on the wall at all because like you said, if someone is not skilled, the tendency is for them to almost leg press the wall and they're going to get a lot more quad activation. So um, for those kind of 90-90 variations, with the exception of maybe the one where we're trying to go after um, internal rotation bilaterally, where it makes more sense to have the feet on the wall, if the goal is just uh, sagittal plane hamstring activation, then we're typically going to do that with the heels on a, on a bench or on a chair. Which, so there's no nothing besides the heel can have contact with anything, and that way they're much less susceptible to getting that extra quad activation. Um, so hopefully hopefully that's helpful. Another thing that we see is people a lot of times will take over with their calves. Um, and so we'll kind of play with the ankle position. Typically if people are, oddly enough, anecdotally, if people are in too much dorsiflexion, we find, um, there's a lot of maybe it's just like eccentric calf stress, but their, their calves tend to take over for their hamstrings. So we'll try to play with having their um, – their, their toes somewhere between like neutral at the ankle or maybe in slight plantar flexion, that'll minimize the calf activation. So if we palpate the calf during that activity, the calf is soft and then we, you know, only the hamstring is really taut from there. Another big thing you see with just a lot of the PRI or corrective exercises in general is people try to beat the exercise. So they're just working way too hard. Um, you know, with like somebody co-contracting with their quad, a lot of times is they just, they want to beat the exercise and that's not the goal. We're trying to get them to kind of learn a new position and get a little bit more in their head and feel certain things. So I was trying to tell people just relax, you know, you're not going to win by doing this as hard as you possibly can. Right. And what about up at the, the rib cage? So in, you know, maybe in the 90-90 isn't the best place to teach someone or, you know, not necessarily... Starting out with a balloon isn't necessarily the best thing either, um, but getting someone to feel the rib cage, uh, you know, internally rotating, depressing. Um, is there any cues that you guys use for that, or is there any positions that you guys utilize? Um, typically, just the I, I find that I'm always saying the word reach with people. So if I'm having them on their hands and knees, um, I'm having them reach their arms through the floor, trying to make their arms very long as opposed to them just sort of rounding their back by doing like a six-pack ab crunch type of thing. Um, so getting them to reach 
uh, first through the floor is good to get their, their back elevator or retract the rib cage to the shoulder blades. And then from there, when you have people, if you just shift them forward a little bit so their chest is a little bit more over their wrists, in that specifically in that all four position, um, then it's right away going to require a little bit more ab facilitation uh, where you won't have to sort of have them do it, you know, fake it where they're almost crunching or, or just creating the contraction almost like non-reflexively. Um, and then I'd say like to regress from that, if it's tough for somebody, maybe getting them back into like a full rock back position where they're sitting back on their heels, uh, knees and hips are flexed as much as possible, elbows and, and forearms pushing into the floor to almost create a, a similar position for the ribcage. That's often a good way to regress somebody just to get them to feel what we want in terms of where the ribcage is moving. And then, again, in that position, when people are breathing, if that's what we're going for, they will, they will feel more abs um, just in that regressed position. And, and then they know, okay, that's what I'm supposed to feel, and now I can transfer it over to something else. And then if it's a regression from that, then it might be that they do need to blow up a balloon. It's, I, I often don't find that I use balloons with people. It is more so sometimes a, a teaching tool for people really just to feel, okay, wow, like that's full ab contraction in 360 degree or, you know, anterior core contraction the entire time. It's not just my six pack, if that's something that they have trouble feeling. I don't know what you guys would add to that. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of times we can overcomplicate this stuff, especially when it comes to the ribcage positioning. I think with these exercises, less is more. So if you, if you buy somebody in a good position at the beginning of the exercise, I find that it minimizes the need to talk about the ribcage at all because all patients tend to do, it's like a game of telephone, like you can tell them one thing and they might be able to recite whatever instructions you gave back to you in the moment correctly, but a couple of days later when they're doing it on their own, they're going to misinterpret the message. Whereas, you know, for example, if you're doing a 90-90 and the heels are, are on a bench where they can dig into something, if you, if you get them in a posterior pelvic tilt, then when they breathe, their ribcage kind of has to be down. Um, because the hamstrings are essentially taking care of the ribcage position. So if you put people in the right positions and just tell them to, to breathe or just maintain the position, a lot of times all that biomechanical stuff fixes itself. So we try to use as little cues as possible. I think one advantage of the balloon is that if you're in a, if you're in a decent position and you blow up the balloon, when you inhale, in order for that air to not rush back into your mouth, you've got to maintain some eccentric control in your abdominals, which is going to allow you to inhale in that state of exhalation. That's why the balloon is cool. It's one of those self-correcting tools. I think the idea is, you know, let the position dictate the mechanics so that you don't have to cue position in every single joint because that's just, I think, too much information for any one person, especially someone who's not into exercising to retain. um, Just kind of one last question going off this a little bit further is I think you guys – probably already answered it a little bit with some of your statements already, but um, someone with a, who's heavy PEC and who is struggling to get the rib cage down, um, would you just end up using positions um, to facilitate that a little bit better? Because oftentimes what I find is then they end up just struggling way too much, and like you said, you don't want to make the exercise to be too strenuous. It should be kind of a relaxed environment um, in order for it to occur. So uh, maybe speak to that a little bit too, as if, if someone's a heavy PEC and uh, something that you might see there. Yeah. Like if someone's having a really hard time shutting off their back and, you know, in all four position or 
9090 or on a wall or whatever it is, where they, just, they have no context of what it is, kind of like post your pelvic tilt and round out their whole spine. The, like prone rock back, like a child's pose position, that, that Greg kind of mentioned before, is a great one just to give them a context of like, what does it feel like to be in this really flexed position that you're not normally in? And then from there, you can kind of, I'll, I'll go back to that and press the lowest level thing we have and then slowly introduce one thing. So then I'll, maybe I'll get their hands in the ground and try to get them in into just a normal, you know, modified L4 belly lift, but they can just then kind of start to feel ab contraction, get their serratus, and get their rib, rib cage retracted. But giving them some sort of context in a really easy position that they can do on their own, like they may go home that first visit with, you know, almost just a prone rock back and elbows or a child's pose for, for a week before they come and see us again. But if they're practicing that, they're just getting, their, their brain is learning what is the context and, and how does this feel to be in this really flexed position? Because that's what we're trying to do when we're trying to inhibit that, that PEC pattern. Yeah, and then, you know, that could be a case where if someone's having a really hard time getting it, nothing wrong with using a manual technique to, to get the ribcage out. I mean, manual therapy has become kind of like sacrilegious, and there's this idea that, you know, if you put your hands on someone, they're going to be dependent on you. And one of those things where it's kind of taken out of context, um, I think you can, you, can make, you can create resiliency and make people self-sufficient and still do manual therapy, but that's just maybe our, our bias. But again, I mean, if you, if you pump on somebody's ribs and then have them do an exercise... It might make them retain the exercise a lot better. So um, there, there's manual ways to achieve the same endpoint. A lot of times, exercise isn't working. Um, you can you can achieve the same objective manually, and then try to go back to the exercise. And at least now they have some kind of a you know neurological reference, even if it's a manual one, to allow them to attain the position a little bit better. Okay. Um, the the next question I have is uh, something that I've got a question for you personally is it's something that I've struggled with a little bit is when the TFL becomes overactive with uh, clients um, and you know especially when they're trying to actively internally rotate the leg and particularly when you need to go after a glute med kind of based off of the, the algorithm um, and trying to get them again to feel it in the correct spots uh, is there any, any anything you guys have found um, to to inhibit a TFL to uh, to get more of the the glute med turning on? Um, again, maybe it's a position that that uh, works better than others. Yeah, definitely. And from starting with one of like their the PRI systems, lower level uh, anterior glute med exercises, and like the for example, like the right side lying uh, anterior glute med, just internally rotating the left hip in this like shifted back position with the knee left knee behind the right. I think that's where we would typically probably start someone just to get them to feel what we want. Um, and I think that's what you might be alluding to. Um, so yeah. then from there, if they're having trouble, yeah, if they're having trouble, um, you know, feeling glute meat and it's, it's just owned by the TFL the entire time. Uh, one thing that I might do right away with them is immediately just put my fist on the table behind their thigh and have them almost like actively extend their hip into my uh, forearm. And then from that position, because they're extending their hip actively a little bit, it uh, hopefully will be able to inhibit a little bit of that uh, hip flexor tone. Sometimes that'll work. Um, another way I like to do it, uh, another specific exercise is where you take them in that same exact position, side lying, um, have them extend their hip a little bit on the left side where they're still bent at 90 degrees or even bent maybe a little bit more um, in the left knee, and then they actively are pushing down into like a towel or bolster into the table, uh, and then internally rotating from there. So they're still feeling the adductor like we want. They're still, you know, their ribcage is still in a good position. They're not extending their back. 
Um, because, but then because they're in a little bit of hip extension, uh, again, it can just take away some of that um, hip flexion bias where the TFL might um, take over. What do you guys think? Anything else? Yeah, and then, you know, I think this is where sometimes following the algorithms can be really helpful because people talk about the adduction drop test or the overs test and what does it tell you. I think that one test actually tells you a lot. So if you do that test and you can't even get that person to, um, you know, extend the thigh to the point that you want to adduct it, well, that tells you there's a lot of quad and hip flexor tone. And you need to be able to get full hip extension or at least hip extension to neutral before you can adduct. So if someone doesn't have that, if you don't go after the hamstring activation before you go after that glute activation, they're kind of in a relative state of hip flexion. So when they go to internally rotate, the TFL is going to have all the leverage. So I wouldn't even go after a glute meat activity until I at least restored full hip extension. So if you're doing that, that overse test or that action drop test, you want to be able to get to leg, the leg to the point that you would actually try to drop it to the floor. And if it can't get there because it's still in flexion, I wouldn't even try that type of uh, glute meat activity. Another thing you have to clear too is the posterior hip capsule. So assuming somebody can extend from there, if they can't shift the hip back far enough into essentially closed chain internal rotation, the TFL is going to be much more likely to have, have leverage when uh, the patient internally rotates the hip. So make sure you clear the posterior capsule because if the person has full hip extension and then is able to shift back nicely into the posterior capsule, when he or she goes to internally rotate, he should feel a lot more glute meat and less TFL. So just going through the algorithm, making sure you clear each of those pieces before you go right to the glute meat is really important. The commonality between what both Greg and Doug said is really just going after the hamstring and just making sure that they own the sagittal plane before you attempt to do anything in the you know transverse or frontal planes. I, another thing that I'll do personally, especially with you know, a big guy who was just – he squats, he feels his TFLs, he, with everything he just feels his TFLs, is, I'll just put my elbow into his TFL and help him relax a little bit. That's honestly like one of the best things that helps him just chill, chill out that muscle, and then they have a much better time feeling the glute meat when you, you know, put him in a, a right side lying hemi 99, you're just a normal uh, right side lying left glute meat exercise. What, what about with someone who's really, really lax? So say the extension drop test is... Uh, well, would would be negative, um, but uh, the adduction drop test would be positive. So you're thinking patho. Um, that's I'm just kind of thinking of a patient right through my head right now. And that that they're still they're able to extend the hip, like you say, being able to clear that first, extend the hip. Maybe they're not doing it in a good position, and maybe that's where my issue might be. Um, but uh, again, they're they're having they're they're struggling feeling that they're they're getting all TFL activation with that, and and when I do take them into more extension, it's it gets even more TFL activation. Um, what what exercise specifically are they really feeling their TFL with? If you don't mind me asking, the right side lying uh, anterior glute med one, where where both hips are flexed. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so like like that's a case that I would go to the one Greg said, the, the Hemi 9090, where they basically just go into left hip extension, and not necessarily extension, more like hip neutral, so just their knee, hip, and shoulder all in a straight line. I would give them a pretty decent, like a yoga block underneath their, their, their left knee to adduct into, because they don't have full adduction, so I'm not going to try to get their knee on the table yet. But if you bring, you know, bring the hip up to them with a block, they can 
really push on that, that, that block with it, the inside of their left knee to kick on their adductor. Once they feel that, then I'll have them inhale as they lift their ankle, exhale as they lower it. And I'll have them literally do reps and put their hand on the glute meat until they feel something. Okay. You do that with people who for like five minutes just straight of just burning it out so they really feel it. So that's something that seemed to help as well. Yeah, and then you can also, I mean, if they're having trouble with that exercise, have them do an adductor pullback. And that's going to work the glute meat. It's probably going to be, uh, they're going to be less prone to use the TFL. And if you want to emphasize the glute meat more in that position, just raise the top leg on the wall a little bit so that when the person goes to adduct, they're also going to be in a little bit more internal rotation. So maybe go after the pullback before, you know, the specific glute meat exercise. And then also, if you, if you want to try that glute meat exercise, um, typically, you know, in the picture it shows the knee is at 90 degrees of flexion. I think if you increase the knee flexion to a little bit more than 90 degrees, so the knee is more more flexed, that way you're going to get a little bit more hamstring activation, which in theory is going to inhibit a little bit of that sagittal plane hip flexor tone. So bias the person into a little bit more knee flexion than maybe you are right now. Try the same exercise, and you, a, lot, a lot of times when I've done that anecdotally, um, they felt the glute med more so than the TFL. Okay, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, one last thing too, it, I, I've started taking this, this patient into, um, a, a standing variation where there's just in left stance and trying to get that almost isometrically, um, just with a left stance activity and just kind of feeling it there. And the act, she actually seems to do fairly well with that. Um, and as long as they're supported with the arms, um, you guys would be cool with something like that too. Yeah, absolutely. I think people are often afraid with PRI stuff to get them up onto their feet sooner, but if you have them supported it and they're in a good position, like that's okay. I, I have found too with, with clients that they have a much easier time feeling glute meat and standing because it just helps them actually shift their weight and get into like left AFIR. And if they pull their knee a little bit and get that adductor and their hips in a good position, they should go glute meat and not TFL. Okay, cool. All right. The last question I got here is, uh, and I just want to kind of leave this open to interpretation, and it can lead to a conversation wherever. Um, but uh, if I was just to bring up the word athletic thorax or the phrase athletic thorax, you know, what what would you, that mean to you? Um, so, so first off, yeah, uh, we love the concept, and to me, uh, it would uh, I would think of it just like any other joint or, or complex of joints. In that, can it do what we ask it to? Can it, just like how we need a hip to rotate externally, internally, to so many degrees of, of range of motion or whatever for the specific activity that the person desires to to uh, partake in, the same thing goes for the rib cage. So can they bend, flex, rotate, and all that in in the amount that we want? And at the same time, it's also very based on, on like what does the person actually need themselves? Are they a, a strength-based athlete like a lineman who? You want them to be as maybe a, a little bit more rigid than somebody like a baseball pitcher who needs, you know, some more of the extremes of range of motion uh, to to create the torque that they need through their shoulder and and throw that fastball. So I think it's also um, that's you know a big conversation uh, starter right there. What, what do you guys? Yeah, the context of of what the athlete themselves need. Like Greg said, a baseball pitcher needs something way different than a, a traditional field sport. Or, Athletic sprinter, where they need some trunk rotation, whether it's for you know to get in and out of cuts or for upright sprinting, but they don't need over rotation. I don't need them to be able to rotate, you know, as much as a gymnast would, or as much as a baseball pitcher would. So the context behind behind that definitely matters. And uh, 
the ability to flex and into and rotate those ribs is huge for any sort of really athletic thoracic you think about, you know, any sort of field sport athlete. Yeah, it's easy because I get to go last, so I get to piggyback a little bit. But I agree with everything that, that Greg and Trevor said. The only thing I would add is I think, um, you know, an athletic thorax is one that allows the extremities to optimize power and strength, and essentially doesn't rob the extremities of athleticism. So if you have to rotate, fine. If you need to shift core, fine. But the extremities are really what's you know, driving power and putting force into the ground in most traditional sports. And you just want to make sure that the thorax is not the weak link that's preventing the, the extremities from putting force into the ground. All right. Great answers, man. Um, I just want to take the time to thank you guys again. I know busy schedules, getting all of us together at one time is not easy. So I want to thank you once again for uh, putting the time time set aside and uh, making time to come on here. really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. This was awesome. Thanks, Greg. Thank you.